Pod Save America is sponsored by the Financial Times. Knowledge is confidence, and reading the Financial Times means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics such as politics, tech, business, and climate change with articles like The Unexpected Revival of America's Trade Unions or How China's Slowdown is Deepening Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. Visit ft.com slash podsave to read free articles and subscribe. That's ft.com slash podsave. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favre. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, President Biden focuses on democracy as his closing midterm message. Democrats angst over the party's strategy and look for signs of hope in the early vote. Senator Mark Kelly joins to talk about his must-win race in Arizona. And later, Dan and I play a round of two takes and a fake. Exciting. Haven't done that It's the reigning two takes and a fake champion across the Crooked Media Network. You've never lost, correct? Literally just I've missed one take out of two rounds. So, so we'll see. Elijah's Elijah's, you know, he's he's loaded for bear. He's congrats to, to you for being so online. <laughs> <laughs> OK, OK, OK. Maybe I just maybe I just understand takes. You know? <laughs> but first, before we start, this is it. The final stretch before Election Day. There is nothing left to do but persuade voters, which you can help do by going to votesaveamerica.com. In October, over 10,000 of you signed up to help get out the vote, but we need more help. So if you haven't signed up yet, it is not too late. We will give you stuff to do right up until the polls close on Tuesday. You do not want to wake up on November 9th wishing you had done more. So go to votesaveamerica.com right now. All right, let's get to the news. Uh, Five days until the polls close, which means... Time to make some closing arguments, unskew some polls, overanalyze the early vote, and second-guess the strategies of campaigns you weren't part of before the results are known. It's always important to Monday morning quarterback and midway through the fourth quarter on Sunday. That's, that how, is, that's how the best of us do it. Don't do it. And don't do it with your friends. Do it publicly, preferably in the paper of record. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kicking things off Wednesday night was President Biden who delivered a primetime speech on Capitol Hill about what's at stake for democracy in this election. Here is a clip. We're facing a defining moment, an inflection point. We, the people, must decide whether we're going to sustain a republic where reality is accepted, the law is obeyed, and your vote is truly sacred. You know, American democracy is under attack because the defeated former president of the United States refuses to accept the results of the 2020 election. Now, extreme MAGA Republicans aim to question not only the legitimacy of past elections, but elections being held now and into the future. Because we've enjoyed our freedoms for so long, it's easy to think they'll always be with us no matter what. But that isn't true today. In our bones, we know democracy at risk is at risk. But we also know this. It's within our power, each and every one of us, to preserve our democracy. What did you think of the speech, Dan? I concur. <laughs> I mean, I agree with Good. every word he Good. said. It is it, the, He is exactly right about 
the threat that this Republican Party and Donald Trump pose to our country, to this election, to elections in the future. You know, voter suppression, insurrection, voter nullification, political violence, are they have all brought to bear a series of very, very dangerous things. And he is, I think, right to call them out. We can talk about the political impact of that, whether that matters, whether it isn't. I dis, I will say I, there is a strain of thought embodied by a column by Jonathan Shade who said there basically was everything J- Joe Biden said was right. Should he have said it? No. I disagree with that. I think, you know, there's been all this talk this week, you know, the Monday pod, I've written about it, about sort of Barack Obama's messaging communications lessons, like why he's good at it. One rule he always had was you always talk about the elephant in the room. And the elephant yeah. in the room is the threat this Republican Party poses to our political institutions, to democracy, to freedom, all the like you can't not talk about that. It would be weird to have an election that did not address the elephant in the room, literally and figuratively in this case. And so I think he had to give the speech. I think people who are panicking about it is it like a mistake are both cut being overly condescending to the voters and dramatically overstating the importance of a speech delivered on three cable news networks at six o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night or whatever time it was, seven o'clock at night. So not even in prime time, a non-prime time speech covered by three cable networks watched only by people who've already decided who they're going to vote for. Well, but that right there, to me, is raises the question, why give the speech? I guess my thing is, like, I of so course you ag- agree with- So are you against the speech? I don't think the speech is going to do any damage at all. No. I think, like I said, I agree with every word of the speech. It is a speech he has given before. It is something he has said many, many, many times before. It is something that many Democrats have said many times before. We had- months and months of high profile hearings that that garnered tens of millions of viewers about January 6th and the ongoing threat to democracy that I'm, I'm glad happened. We covered them all on this podcast. I think the question is, with five or six days left until the election, what do you want voters to think about when they go into the voting booth? And right now, voters are telling us that they are struggling that they are very concerned about the cost of living, about gas, groceries, housing, education, healthcare, and they're wondering who will do something about that. And to me, like I think that talking about the threat to democracy is necessary, but not sufficient um, when you're trying to convince people to turn out to vote. I don't know whose mind isn't made up about whether or not they are concerned about the threat to democracy posed by the Republican Party at this point. I, I agree with that. I think based on the infra, the data that we have, which is a combination of largely public polling and like a smattering of private polls that you and I still see as people who have like one half of a foot still in like active politics, would yeah. suggest that the people who care about this issue on the terms in which we think of it, we Democrats and progressives think about the way Joe Biden thinks about it, have already voted, let alone decided yeah. who they're going to vote for. And so that is definitely true. So the two things that I want to bring some humility to that declaration to are, one, we do not have access to the same data the White House has. 
Like that, like that is definitely true. Like you and I have been it. We've gotten the sort of polling they get. Maybe they see something we don't. It would be surprising to me that the polling they see is dramatically different from what we hear from other people who are seeing similar polls. But there is a reason for it. The other reason why they might have just given the speech is because the president felt strongly about it and the election is coming and you give it and there's no like master plan behind it. I just think it is at worst neutral. In this situation, because I do not believe he could have given a speech that would have been covered by all three networks in something in the neighborhood of prime time about inflation like that not would not have been like there was not that was not an available card to play. This was the only card to play. The only time in fairness to what else where the press like really like pays attention is when we talk about their favorite issue, which is democracy. If you talk about things that people who don't watch cable news care about, because that's who cares. It's like that is it is cable news viewers are highly politically active high news consumers who are very focused on democracy. That includes Fox News viewers who think about it in the exact, I would say, incorrect way. And so this is how you get attention. Was this attention about the right thing? Maybe not. I don't think it's the wrong thing, but I'm not sure. it's not the persuasive thing. At worst, neutral, I am in complete agreement with. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it did any, uh, yeah, I don't think it did any damage at all. Because, partly because, like I said, I believe everything that he said. But I do think there's, like, like you mentioned Obama and mentioning the elephant in the room. Obama talked about the threat to democracy in all of his speeches over the last week when he was campaigning, but it was sort of like three quarters of the way through the speech. (laughs) And the way he talked about it was, I realize that democracy may not be an issue that's on the top of your mind as much as inflation and gas prices and abortion access and gun violence. I realize that, but here's why it's important. Right. And so he he sort of tried to meet people where they are. And I just wonder, I wonder, you know, it's it's there's only so many opportunities uh, to get a message out between now and Election Day. And I feel like every one of those opportunities is incredibly valuable and shouldn't be missed. And I think there we have seen two kinds of Joe Bidens over the last several years, uh, especially in this in the 2020 campaign and in the White House. And one is like. Uh, John Meacham, Joe Biden, where he gives speeches that are like very lofty and written for history about democracy. And the other is uh, Scranton, Joe Biden, where he talks about uh, fighting for working class people like the people he grew up with. And he means it and he feels passionate about it because he feels like that's who Joe Biden is. And I think at this moment, the country and Joe Biden will be better served with Scranton Joe Biden than uh, John Meacham write for history books, Joe Biden. I think we would, I, I agree with that. We would also need a time machine to go back like nine months to have mm-hmm. the president do that and the entire party yeah. do that. And there have been times where he has done it certainly more than other members of his party or other members of the sort of democratic, you know, pundits, personalities, sure. media folks, whatever. There is one, I want to just put a pin in something that way we can come back to uh, after the election, after yeah. the votes have been cast, because it may turn out that the votes will prove what I'm about to say incorrect. But I have this lingering concern about how we're talking about democracy as a party. Joe Biden is talking about it in the way we have all been talking about it for five years now, since Donald Trump, seven years, whatever, ever since Donald Trump ruined our lives. We've been yeah. talking about it the same way. And especially since January 6th. And when I and I thought about this as I was watching the speech last night, which is because of the very real threat of Trump and MAGA Republicans, we, 
the anti-Trump majority in this country, Democrats, never Trumpers, that group, that group of people, have appointed ourselves protectors of democracy. And in doing so, what I now worry about is that we've appointed ourselves the protectors of a political system that has not worked for the vast majority of Americans for a long time. And that we yeah. have we've made ourselves status quo. And we think of democracy as this end in of itself, like this political system that is good that we should protect. It is a separate thing from inflation. When if you're just like a person sitting at home who is working really hard, trying to do everything right, and now your wages haven't gone up, but now the cost of gas and groceries have gone way up, to you, that's a failure of politics. That's not a – that says something about the political system that it's not working for you. And that if we – we're going to – whatever happens on Tuesday, this battle is going to continue you know, in the 24, whether it's Trump or some other person. Like this is going to be the stakes. And I think we have to go from being the protectors of democracy to the reformers of democracy, that we have to be trying to fix the political system. Because right now it's we want to protect the system that doesn't work and they want to tear it down. And for some number of voters, tearing it down is going to seem pretty fucking appealing, particularly in an, in an economic environment like we're currently in. And we have to shift that where it's like reform that is making it a system that works better, like a lot of things we talk about, like filibuster, et cetera, but also getting corruption out of the system. You know, the fact that the party went back to taking lobbyist donations like seven years ago was fucking insane. The fact that we brought earmarks back, like all of that stuff, how do we clean it, fix the system, clean it up? Like that is like how I think we're going to probably have to shift our rhetoric when it comes to democracy, if that makes sense. It makes sense. It's the exact conclusion I reached after doing all those focus groups in the wilderness and talking to not just groups of voters, but like some of the smartest strategists in the party. Like if we want to persuade people to save democracy, we have to persuade them that democracy is worth saving. That is just the fundamental thing. And the way that, and and this is not just like guessing that we're doing here. We talked about a couple episodes ago, that New York Times poll. And, and look, Biden cites this in the speech last night. He said, oh, it's a top concern for a lot of people. But when the New York Times asked people what they meant by they're concerned about threats to democracy, most people said it's about corruption. It's about the fact that the government is not working on behalf of ordinary people anymore. And like I keep thinking especially of uh, whatever happens in this election, right? Like say say we squeak by. This is still going to be, you know, the polls are wrong and and Democrats squeak by. This is still going to be an issue because we have still been hemorrhaging working class voters not just white, but Latino and now black men as well over the last several elections. We've been losing them, okay? And you wonder why do we continue to lose working class voters? Well, I I keep thinking about like the two focus groups that, that stick with me the most are sort of the working class Latinos I spoke to in Las Vegas and the working class black voters I spoke to in Atlanta. And unprompted when I asked them, what's going on? What's bothering you? Inflation, housing, crime, and, you know, this this woman, I keep thinking about her in Vegas, and she's like, she spoke passionately about how angry she is at Republicans for wanting to ban abortion, how angry she is at them for wanting to, she's like, you can, you tell me that I have to have a child, and yet I can't tell you not to bring a gun uh, to a school to, sh- to shoot my kids. I have to worry about my kids going to school, and you're telling me, so she was very passionate about these issues. She said that, you know, uh, they all said that uh, Adam Laxalt is a big lie supporter, so they don't like him. But the top issue 
is housing. The thing they are most concerned about is housing. And this woman was like, I have gone from motel to motel for three months because I couldn't afford rent and I work two jobs and no one is doing anything about it. And if you're that person and you tune into the news and you see a speech about democracy and institutions and, and election deniers and stuff like that, and then you go on Twitter or you go on social media and you see people saying like, oh, well, the reason that people are upset about inflation is because the media has brainwashed them or the media has covered crime. And actually, look, crime statistics in red states are just as are worse than in blue states and blah, 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 blah. And you're thinking to yourself, OK, well, I can't afford to live somewhere and I'm really worried about crime in my neighborhood and no one seems to be talking about these things like I know we want those people to understand the threat in the way that we understand the threat. I get that. But if they're not, have we thought about trying another way to persuade them to join our pro-democracy coalition? And maybe part of that is to say, like, yeah, we're going to fight like hell for you. And we're going to fight like hell to make sure that you can afford to live somewhere. And by the way, that other fucking party, they're not because they care about their rich friends and their wingnut Christian nationalist base. That's all they care about. So they're going to focus on that shit. We're going to focus on you. We're going to fight like hell for you. We have ceded the reform issue to a party run by corrupt billionaires. It's wild. We never talk about it. And this is not like going down the path of huge government spending and social, all that bullshit. It is people want to hold corporations and wealth and power accountable. They want our institutions to work for them because if we cannot make institutions work for them, they will vote for demagogues who will break those institutions because they're so frustrated. So like, let's talk about, so that was Biden's closing argument. Every candidate is making their own closing argument. Um, We have a sample of some of the final ads from Senate candidates, uh, John Fetterman, Mandela Barnes, Tim Ryan, and uh, Congresswoman Elaine Luria. Uh, Let's listen. J.D. Vance, a fraud who invests in companies that outsource jobs to China. That ain't Ohio. An extremist who calls rape inconvenient and toxically believes women should stay in violent marriages. That is not Ohio. A California imposter who grew a beard and wore flannel to fit in. In the Senate, Johnson wrote a loophole that gave huge tax cuts to himself and his biggest donors. And while our costs are rising, he supports a plan that would raise taxes on the middle class. Ron Johnson looks out for himself, not us. Oz has spent his life taking advantage of people, making himself rich. I've taken on the powerful, been different. Oz will only work for himself in Washington, just like the rest. He lies for your vote. I'll never break your trust. If you support insurrectionists or call our military weak, I'm not your candidate. If you attack the FBI and defend Donald Trump, I'm not your candidate. And if you believe the 2020 election was stolen, definitely not your candidate. All right. So if you think these messages sound like they're a bit all over the map, you're not alone. Uh, Here's the New York Times in a classic of the genre. Uh, Headline is top Democrats question their party strategy as midterm worries grow. Uh, Leading lawmakers and strategists are openly doubting the party's kitchen sink approach, saying Democrats have failed to unite around one central message. Uh, Dan, what do you think? Are they right? Was it even possible for the party to unite around a central message? What do you think? John, you know how in an NBA game, at the end of like the third quarter, they make the coaches do this interview, like all for the Mm -hmm. televised games. And then the coach says nothing, just we're working hard. We're going to have defense get better. 
imagine if the coaches were like, I don't know. Team kind of sucks. Wish we'd done something. <laughs> Wish our point guard could dribble. <laughs> That's basically what is happening here. You can just that injury, say that, that injury really fucked us. <laughs> <laughs> not just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's happening there. You gotta have better players. <laughs> it's just, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't know, John. Just, <laughs> I mean, there are a few different and sometimes conflicting criticisms in the piece. But just to oversimplify the debate, they're basically, it's sort of the one we were just talking about. There are some people who think Democrats have focused too much on abortion and democracy and not enough on inflation and crime. Other people who think Democrats haven't focused enough on the threat that Republicans pose to democracy and abortion access and other freedoms. What do you make of this debate? It is interesting. You know, we we were just talking about sort of seeding uh, the mantle of, you know, fighting corruption to Republicans and billionaires and stuff like that. You did hear in almost all of those ads, except uh, Elaine Lurie is at the end, who, of course, she is a member of the um, January 6th committee. Uh, She is in a sort of college educated area. That's her district. But Fetterman, Barnes, uh, Ryan, very economically populist closing ads. What do you make of all this? Yeah, I think that's the right close. You know, we this is going to be very on brand, but. I think the right messaging is a lot of what Obama has been saying. It is connecting democracy to the economy and connecting the issue of the economy to who the candidate is going to fight for. And that is the right thing to do. And I think there's two, like part of the critique in that article is Democrats didn't settle on a single message. Yeah. Like, why don't we have a single message? And I think there's kind of a couple ways to look at that. One is it's particularly in Senate races, which are largely about the candidates, which is why in many cases the Democrats are doing much better in those Senate races than the generic ballot would suggest or Joe Biden's approval rating would suggest because they become about the candidates, They're about Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock or Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance or whatever else. And in that case, you kind of want to have a campaign that's specific to those candidates. Like you're going to run a different race against Dr. Oz than you are J.D. Vance or Herschel Walker. I do think nationally there is an argument, if we could go back in time, for a singular branding of Republicans Mm -hmm. because Republicans have a singular brand on Democrats. They have a much greater megaphone to shout that brand from and to do it. And for a while over the summer, we did like the, we were ever because of the Dobbs decision, everyone was painting the Republicans as extreme with abortion as an example of that. And that did work for the course of the summer when additional voters who were not as politically engaged checked in in the fall. And when the economy changed a little bit, that shifted under us. And I don't know that we necessarily shifted with us. But the other here's the important point here. We don't know whether this is right or wrong. We're going to find out. We're actually, it's actually probably going to take like 10 days before we know, but we'll know what, you know, I think each of these messages are good and interesting. And it's and given the demographics of Elaine Luria's uh, district and her role in the January 6th committee, that very well may be the right message for her. Um, but we're just, we're just going to have, it's, this is what drives me insane about this article is a bunch of people who stick their finger in the wind to see which way it's blowing, think it's blowing the wrong way for Democrats, then rush out to call a reporter to tell them they knew it was going to go wrong all along and they're smarter than the people have to actually make the decisions. Yeah, no, that is, uh, look, I know we dispense a lot of uh, advice and analysis here. I should say, like, I don't know what the hell the right answer is either for sure. 
But I do think, like, all, I think, again, regardless of the results, I think all of us have to be a little, those of us who are engaged in politics, pay attention to politics or close to politics, there is this, like, tendency to dismiss voters as as if they're, like, this, like, alien group of people, right? Like, you hear focus groups, you hear polls, and you're like, oh, what is that? Or you say, oh, the voters are wrong, or the voters are crazy, or I'm so frustrated with the voters, and I do think that, like, all we can do is just listen to each other. Listen, the voters aren't just, f- like, some foreign group of people. They're, like, our fellow citizens. We need their votes to win, you know? And, like, all we can do is go out there and listen to them and talk to people and 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 understand what their concerns are and how to get their votes. Like, that. I just... It's, it's a lot. It's a lot, Dan. Can, can I just say... One more thing about this, it's probably not constructive, but it might have a little bit of catharsis to it. Sure. Which is, there is a genre of person within our party who looks at something terrible Republicans do, and their first instinct is to yell at Democrats about it. Yeah. A right-winger, radicalized on irresponsible Republican rhetoric, tries to murder the Democratic Speaker of the House, and the first thing is not to yell at the Republicans— not to yell at the media infrastructure that radicalized that person is to yell at Democrats for not talking about that for, for not raising the threat more. And I think if you're one of those people, you ought to look in the mirror because that you are missing the point. And you should recognize that you have found yourself in a law in a lane that has existed for a long time because there is always a place of relevance in American politics for a Democrat who shits on Democrats. Yeah. And that person has a reserved seat on the Sunday show roundtables. If you look at it, Joe Lieberman's name is etched on the back, Like you are following in that level. And I think, and that is not to say that the party is immune to criticism, far from it. We have offered some here today. Maybe we should even offer some more. But I think that criticism has to have some basis in the following things. One, a realistic understanding of the limits of power the Democrats have. Nancy Pelosi cannot make AOC and Abigail Spanberger agree on everything. Chuck Schumer cannot make Joe Manchin abolish the filibuster. Like, that is not within their power. Joe Biden has a much smaller bully pulpit than we would like to think. He cannot bend public opinion to his will. Maybe he should be trying harder to do so, but that he cannot, It is this is not the West Wing. Next, I think if you're going to criticize, offer specific ideas based in those limitations I just talked about. Simply saying, do more, shout louder is not advice. Third, to your point, use data to back up why you think we're do- Democrats are doing something wrong. And if you're someone who just says polls are all wrong or focus groups are bullshit, you are basically doing the public opinion version of climate denial. You're just disregarding science to prove to reinforce your pre-existing point. Because even if you think polling is wrong, there's lots of other data out there. There's the precinct level data the Catalyst does. There's the uh, validated voter study from Pew. There's political science research. There's like real, you can, you can find a factual. Walk out your fucking door and just talk to some people. Yes. You can touch grass while you do it. Just touch 
some grass. Get off your computer and just talk to some people. I'm begging of you. Yeah, there's this whole strain like, oh, the Democrats have have relied too much on data. And like data becomes this like amorphous evil thing. It's like the data is just what people are saying. Yes. <laughs> it's pilots just voters, it's just pilots voters rely opinions. too much on radar. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, you want to save democracy? That's what democracy is. It's 300 million people who all have different opinions and who all have different and all are in different places. And you got to get a majority of them to be on your side to win that's it that's, that's the, that is the most basic element of what we're doing here last point about these people if after all of that you are still so sure you are right and they are so wrong put down your phone and get in the fucking game yeah right go, go run, get it. run for something run for something go apply for a job on capitol hill start a political organization use your platform to actually mobilize instead of criticize Get in the game. If all you're doing is if you think Republicans are so bad that you have to yell at Democrats, I really think you're missing the point. All right. I feel a little bit better now. <laughs> no one in my house has slept through the night in like two weeks. I am underfed, overcaffeinated, extremely tired. I needed that. <laughs> I want to thank you, our listeners, for whatever part of that does not get cut, <laughs> perhaps should be. I feel better. Thank you. <laughs> We're gonna have a lot more to. We'll have a lot more to say. I mean, the next uh, the next few weeks are gonna be something. It's either gonna be triumphalism. I, you know, or- I wanted to ask you one more question, but now I feel like it's gonna trigger you, so maybe I won't. Well, but because I, <laughs> it's just a question because you are our um, Crooked Media's biggest YouTube star with Political Experts React. Yes, and so I know that you focus a lot on ads. But it's interesting to me that, like, I would say again, my opinion could be wrong, but um, Fetterman, Ryan, Barnes. All of those ads focusing on economic populism, focusing on like they're fighting for people in their state and their opponents are not. I'd say those are right on the money. I do think it's become difficult for like you get all these ads, these paid ads that are all about sort of economic populism and drawing the economic contrast. And then the earned media, meaning like what the narrative is about, what the press writes about, what voters see when they're not watching ads, but still are consuming information about politics. That's almost never about the economy. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's never, or at least it's not. It's about like high inflation. It's about gas prices and inflation, but it's not about like the fight between Democrats and Republicans over what they would each do about it. And I wonder, like, do you think these ads are effective? Do you think like Democrats? How do how do we like sort of break through, uh, sort of the and get more earned media about these economic fights? I think the use of the term earn media is an anachronism in this day and age. Mm. And that we should not think about the coverage. We should think about the conversation and what people are talking about. And then one of the challenges that Democrats face, and this is a challenge that's really been true since every election after the 2012 presidential election, is that the conversation is happening around cultural issues. And so the ads on economic populism that work are the ones that use it as a way to tell a story about who their opponent is. It's a values-based argument about them. It is a proxy for a larger conversation. But we have a dramatic challenge, which is people – issues only matter if they interact with what is happening in the world, what they're thinking about. And we have a media ecosystem and a social media ecosystem that bends heavily towards cultural identity issues because that's the only way to get attention and drive traffic in this day and age. And it's been this huge shift in politics, um, not to promote another podcast on this one, but Ezra Klein had a podcast this week with uh, Lynn Vavrick and John Sides, who are two 
political very science smart. Pro- very political science professors who do in-depth studies of the I think the last three presidential elections, but their 2020 study just came out and they write it's essentially a book about it. And one of the points they make is in their I think this was in their 2016 study is that up until 2016, the axis upon which politics was fought were New Deal-based issues. From Franklin Roosevelt to through the 2012 election, it was it was about size of government, who benefits, how you pay for it, taxes, et cetera. And that shifted to cultural issues in 2016. And we have not yet recovered or found a way to pivot it back to our stuff. And I think that's going to really require thinking about it. I don't have the answers differently. Like, how do you make the economy a cultural issue. And populism is one way to do that. Um, mixing it with reform is another way to do that. But I think that's going to be one of the big tasks going forward, whether we win or lose on Tuesday. Yeah, Ezra's been on this beat because uh, he also had a political scientist on who uh, talked about how this is not just a, an American phenomenon, by the way. This is sort of why we're seeing the rise of right-wing populist parties all over the world, is that this axis has shifted um, not just here, but all over the place where it's now this sort of cultural divide more so than an economic one. And you're right. I don't, I don't think there's not an easy answer of just like listing off economic policies more like that's not, I don't think that's going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's much bigger than that. But, but we do at least have to recognize that that's, that's the issue right now. And that's where there's this huge divide between non-college and college voters, uh, which we find ourselves on a side that doesn't have as many people. Well, it has more people, just not allocated appropriately among the states that decide to set an electoral college. Correct, correct, correct. All right, so before we get to the interview, we, we want to help people uh, make sense of the debates you might have noticed around uh, two things, partisan polls and the early vote. We're, we're going we're gonna to give you guys this, uh, but only if you sign up for Vote Save America shifts. <laughs> So I'm I'm just going to trust you all that right now you're signing up for some Vote Save America shifts, and now we'll dig in. Uh, Dan, let's take each of these separately. Um, there's been some Democrats have pointed out that the polling averages are just have they've been flooded with um, polls that are either from Republican firms or Republican leaning firms, and that's sort of screwing up the average. And you know, former Clinton staffer Simon Rosenberg he's he's called this Republican propaganda designed to shape public opinion uh, about who's winning. Um, what do you, what do you make of that? There, there is an element of truth to what Simon is saying and that what something happened in 2020, which is forever the real clear politics polling average was sort of the gold standard of polling averages, certainly before various Nates got involved in data science and started waiting on was Just like, we're going to instead of look at one poll, look at all of these polls. And yeah. In the Trump era, a bunch of right-wing billionaires bought the bought real clear politics, and they changed the polling standards and started letting in a whole bunch of j- shit polls, really Republican mm-hmm. polls. And in 2020, that did affect the average. Now, the reason why this is somewhat of a flawed argument is by adding in the Republican polls, the Republican leading polls, it actually brought the average closer to the real results in the states right. than before. And so yeah. that's one of the problems. Like there are more Republican polls. There's not a bunch of Democratic Trafalgar's out there like putting out polls. But the problem is Trafalgar got an A rating because they were right. Now, are they right in a Brooklyn clock sense? Probably because they just they err on the side of Republicans. And that has been the, the way to be right um, in recent years. But ultimately, whether the averages have moved by half a point or not, who cares? And just pick a poll that you want to trust, right? That could be the, you know, New York Times, uh, Siena polls, or the NBC, Wall Street polls. They all show basically the same thing, 
which is incredibly yeah. close races that have moved somewhat in the Republican direction over the last month. Whether that's by one point or two points, it doesn't matter. If you take out all the the Republican and Republican leading polls, you still have uh, an extremely close horse race that Republicans have uh, probably have like a tiny edge on right yeah. now. So that's that's just the truth. All right, what about the early vote? Well, just this is our our annual warning about the early vote. What do you think? <laughs> so it is true that polls are guesses and early vote is actual votes. These are people who mm-hmm. have actually voted. The problem with the early vote is we don't know how much of the picture it's telling us for a couple of reasons. One is to measure Democratic performance, you have to measure it against a baseline of something. And there is no good baseline in this election because the in 2020, the voting rules changed in a lot of states because of the pandemic. States that did not allow early votes started allowing early vote votes that didn't allow mail ballots started allowing mail ballots. And even in the states with long histories of early voting, voting behavior in those states changed. Like, for example, Florida is a state where Republicans always did better in the early vote than Democrats before 2020. But now that how you vote, thanks to Donald Trump, now how you vote is almost as important for whom you vote. Republicans now tend to vote even more so at the on election day and Democrats vote by mail. So you can't compare this to 2020 because that's a presidential election with a large voter pool. And you can't compare it to 2018 because that's before a seismic shift in how people voted. So if you see numbers that show Democrats are doing so much better than they were in 2018, maybe that's something great. Maybe not. Maybe it just tells you that a bunch of people who in 2018 voted on election day now vote early because they think that's a very convenient, awesome, safe way to vote. Next, in some states will tell you, will the Secretary of State will release who voted by party, number of Democrats, number of Republicans, number of unaffiliated. That is, that is informative, you know, even without a baseline, that's interesting. The problem yeah. is some states have a very large unaffiliated number, in some cases larger than I like in Colorado and I think New Hampshire, larger than either party. And so when you see these these in these states that do not release party partisan voting, you're seeing modeling done based on who they think voted. And so maybe that is right. Maybe it's wrong. We don't know. And so it is, this is all very polling, maybe imprecise. These are also imprecise ways to make judgments. And once again, we're going to find out before too long. And the one exception to this, everything we just said here is usually uh, John Ralston, uh, reporter in Nevada, who knows Nevada better than anyone else, who does an early voting blog. And the reason that and 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 Ralston doesn't say like, oh, I know exactly what the outcome's gonna be. He gives you like different models and different projections. But the reason that Nevada's different is because you get a, a most of the electorate votes early or by mail before election day. And so if you you know the denominator, then you know that most people have voted and they release the Democrat versus Republican split. Um, you can have a better sense of what might happen. Now, even there, there's a lot of unaffiliated voters and you don't know what the split there is going to be. So, and, and Ralston has like different projections like, oh, if Indy's split, it looks like this. If Indy's go 10 points for Republicans, it goes this way. So you can do it that way. But that one's like, that's like a little more, you get a little more information out of Nevada. Um, but the rest of the states, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really bother. Ultimately, I think we are all spend using early vote, polling average, unskewing stuff trying to figure out what is going to happen instead of trying to make happen what we want to happen, right? That's why everyone who's still listening to this via our 
activism-based Patreon has already signed up for Vote Save America. So only the volunteer, only the good people know this now. And if you hopefully, somehow snuck hopefully everyone in, has, hopefully has, everyone has turned us off five minutes ago and they're just making calls right now. Oh, that's a good point. We are just speaking to We're each other. We're just talking to each other. <laughs> All right. When we come back, I'll talk to Arizona Senator Mark Kelly. Pod Save America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today in calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our Capitol. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, It's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Pod Save America is brought to you by Helix Sleep. How long have you had your mattress? For most people, it's probably time for an upgrade, right? Well, Helix has exactly what you need. Everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. Uh, I have a Helix mattress in our guest bedroom. Mm -hmm. Every single person who stays with us says, that bed is so comfortable. Where'd you get it? You know what I say? Where do you say? Helix. I love my Helix mattress. I have a Dawn Lux. Dawn Lux. It's very comfortable. So Lux. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. 
Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. Joining us today, a former Navy captain, retired astronaut, and current senator from Arizona who's in one of the closest and most important midterm races in the country, Mark Kelly, welcome to Pod Save America. John, thank you, uh, thank you for having me on. I think this is—I think it's my first time on the show, so it's good to be here. It is, it is. We're lucky to have you. So last night, President Biden uh, focused his closing midterm argument on the threat to democracy posed by extremism and election deniers like your opponent. You have focused your closing argument on your bipartisan track record, economic opportunity, public safety. Can you talk about why you've prioritized those messages over uh, the one that we heard from President Biden last night? Well, let me let me first say, I think both of these messages are important. Um, you know, I am not your uh, typical politician. You know, I'm a guy about getting stuff done. I was in the Navy for 25 years. I spent 15 years at NASA. I come from an operational background. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my message, uh, you know, for the last six months has been about a lot of different things you know, about uh, good paying jobs here in the state of Arizona, about bringing down costs for families, you know, gas and groceries and housing, it's just too expensive. So I've been focused in focused on delivering on those things. But I also think it's really important to know, and I think the president made this point, while I didn't see the speech last night, you know, I was busy, busy with a campaign event, I imagine you're probably going to ask about. Um, I think it's an important message to send. And that is that this democracy we've had for near, nearly 250 years is not something that's guaranteed. And we're going to have to fight for it. And there are forces out there, um, you know, that could, um, over a period of time, cause this whole thing to unravel. You know, I've said this before on the campaign trail that I really think the wheels could come off of our democracy because of people like my opponent, Blake Masters, uh, who is denying the 2020, you know, election again here in Arizona, denying the outcome. He did it in the beginning of the campaign, and then he stopped for a while. And then about three weeks ago, he gets a phone call from a guy in Florida uh, that uh, says he has to start doing it again. So he's now he's denying the 2020 election. But what's worse than that is he's also denying an election that's still, you know, five, six days in the future here. He started doing that. Uh, already so yeah these this is this is dangerous and um and I, I i didn't see all the president's remarks but he i i assume i i understand what he was trying to say and i think that's an, an important message for people to hear uh you mentioned people's economic concerns obviously you know interest rates are keep rising to tamp down inflation that's also softened the housing markets. So now we got higher prices, higher credit card interest. Homes are worth less. If the Democrats hold the House and the Senate, w- what do you think the party should do to improve the economic situation? Yeah, well, you know, nobody saw this pandemic coming. And, you know, we've been in this now for three years and it was incredibly disruptive, especially to supply chains. And that still exists in many sectors of the economy today, you know, where manufacturers can't get parts, you know, for businesses can't get the products. Um, They're 
at least right now, there's a shortage in the labor market because of the disruption. You know, I, you know, we also, we, we often think of our economy as, you know, this very stable, you know, well-functioning, you know, machine. And when 2020 hit, I think we all realized that it's a lot less stable than we, than, than we realized. You know, I think of this in a lot, a lot of times in terms of my old job, you know, with airplanes that are unstable, you push it, push it off in one little direction and it, it, it could go out of control. Um, as a test pilot, you know, that was a big part of, you know, my responsibility was testing things in airplanes and changes. And I think we realized that their little disruption in the economy couldn't have rippling effects. We're still feeling, feeling that today. We've got to continue to address rising costs. Uh, interest rates are now a factor here, but that is by choice. You know, the Fed is making a decision to raise interest rates uh, to stop or slow uh, inflation. Um, these are hard decisions. I think it's hard to get this exactly right. Um, but consumers now who were impacted, you know, with higher costs, now they're going to have higher borrowing costs and businesses they are going to have higher borrowing co costs and it's going to make it more difficult for businesses to grow. You know, these are the kind of things that, um, you know, could multiply into, you know, into other problems. I think right now, you know, the Fed has taken the right steps in raising in interest rates. I know there are some folks that, you know, disagree with that, uh, but we have to, um, you know, stop, stop this uh, inflationary pressure, this upward you know, inflation. We have some of the highest inflation, highest rising costs in the country are in Maricopa County. And, you know, I remember as a kid, I was in middle school and high school in the late 70s and early 80s. I remember what that was like. You know, first the high inflation and then the high interest rates. It was hard for my mom, especially. She was the one in our family who would have to pay the bills. And I remember her sitting at the kitchen table with all the, you know, all the bills trying to figure out what to pay. She had one of those giant calculators. Remember the calculator about that big? And she was trying to figure yeah. it out. So I know what folks are going through. That's why I've worked to address this, you know, address it with the White House specifically on the price of gasoline. Um, I talked to a guy down at Yuma uh, who lives about 50, 60 miles from work. He, he's a federal government contractor. And he told me, he says, it's starting to be unaffordable for him to go to work because he's got this 60 mile commute each way every single day. And it's getting really, really expensive. Yeah. So, you know, I've called on the administration to increase oil and gas production. Uh, they did a little bit of it. And then we put it in the Inflation Reduction Act to compel the federal government to expand leasing in the Gulf of Mexico. But we have to do more. Um, what do you, what do you think about the uh, windfall profits tax that President Biden floated this week? Well, I think it's something to consider, and I will. I'll be back in uh, back in this in DC uh, week from Monday. Uh, there's a lot of issues that we have to address. Um, Want to make sure the government stays funded. There's mm. you know some folks that uh, that serve in the United States Congress that are perfectly fine with the government shutting down. That's not an option for me. Uh, I mean, the, just, you know, just across the country, the role of the federal government, uh, when the government shuts down, it hurts people. And yeah. uh, we can't allow that to happen. Um, you mentioned the rally that you were at uh, with my old boss, Barack Obama, last night. Um, 
where he said that if you were trying to create a la- in a lab a wacky Republican politician, it would look a lot like Blake Masters. What do you think of that characterization of your opponent? This is funny. Um, <laughs> you know, I often try to stick to the facts and what people say. Um, I appreciate the the sentiment. Uh, my opponents, you know, he's a relatively young guy. He's new to this. I'm new new to this too. Um, but he has some ideas that I think and some beliefs. I mean, beliefs are almost worse than ideas when they're dangerous. And he's got some beliefs that are just dangerous for Arizonans um, on everything. I think if you look across the country for, for, you know, a challenger for a U.S. Senate seat, a competitive U.S. Senate seat, I think there's an argument to be made that he's got the most extreme views, Um, whether it's on abortion. He calls abortion demonic and a religious sacrifice and says he wants to punish the doctors. I mean, think about this. He wants to punish doctors for delivering health care to women. And he wants a national abortion ban that's so strict that even in the case of when a woman is raped, she will not be able to make this decision herself or between her and her doctor. I mean, that's what he wants. And the national abortion ban he wants could criminalize this decision for women. Um, Social Security. I mean, he has said during the campaign on a debate stage, people are usually pretty careful and thoughtful about what they say during a debate. They know it's recorded. um, And he got caught telling the truth. You know, he says he wants to privatize Social Security. He even he I hadn't heard this before. uh, He used the term he wants to cut the knot. I don't know exactly what that means, but I can tell you this. Doesn't sound good. It doesn't does sound not, good. It does not sound good. I mean, cutting the <laughs> knot on a senior, you know, who's just trying to get by. I meet mean, so many seniors in our state that are having to make these, you know, really tough economic decisions all the time. And he wants to send their Social Security earnings to Wall Street. I mean, who makes money in that deal? Wall Street. Uh, so on issue after issue, he's got he's got some really dangerous views about our uh, about the United States military that I served in for, um, uh, you know, tw- over 25 years, uh, says our military is totally incompetent. I mean, uh, th- these are beliefs that are dangerous. So I um, I get what uh, your for- former boss uh, was trying to articulate there. So uh, President Biden started his speech last night by um talking about the horrifying attack on Paul Pelosi, you and your family sadly understand the threat of political violence in a personal way. Your wife, former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, was was shot during an event with constituents in, in 2011. How has that tragedy shaped your views on political violence and what we do about it as a country? I would say more than anything else. I mean, it has, um, you know, made it very real for us. You know, it's affected, you know, my wife and and me, too. I mean, when Gabby got shot in 2011, I mean, she was nearly assassinated. Mm-hmm. Six people died, 12 others injured. You know, this was a this was politically motivated. This individual had come to a previous event of hers, didn't like what she said, planned this attack. Um the rhetoric that we see out there and the polarization and the political, you know, just the, 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 this charged political atmosphere that we live in right now, I think it makes it more likely that these things will occur. 
Um, that's why I've been focused on, and you mentioned my message, which is also what I've done in the United States Senate, which is bringing people together, working with Republicans, not accepting that we have to live in a world where the other party is the enemy. That's not true for me. That's not true for many of my colleagues in the Senate. I would say it's not true for most of them. Um, so we've got to fight back against these forces. And what happened to Paul Pelosi was just horrific. I mean, that individual was there, in my opinion, to to kill the Speaker of the House. Yeah. You know, that's that's what happened to Gabby. It ended Gabby's career. It ended my career at NASA and my career in the United States Navy. What happened in January of 2011? We can't accept that that this is somehow the new normal. And that's why we have to call out individuals um, who try to normalize this. And that's happened over the last you know, weeks since this you know, happened to the speaker's husband. And there are folks that just dismiss it and they make jokes about it. This isn't funny. It's serious. And those individuals shouldn't think for a second that they're immune to it happening to them. I mean, this is as this problem grows, it exposes more and more individuals. You know, I don't know what the numbers is, the numbers are in, in the United States Congress, but the death threats that members of the United States Senate get, I'm speaking from my experience, it is significant. I mean, the threats of violence against us um, and, you know, of you know, for 535 of us, I can't imagine what that number is. It, it, it has got to be off the charts. And these are, you know, for the most part, individuals is, that are just trying to serve our country and make our country a better place, even when we disagree. But we've got individuals out there that um, you, you, just just the way they conduct themselves um you know, puts us in a situation where you will have individuals often unstable, but they'll be pushed over the edge and they will commit an act of violence. And there's no place in our country for that. How do you deal with what I must be, what I imagine must be a real challenge in you're trying to sort of this, this political climate of violence, you're trying to sort of tamp it down by showing that you can work with Republicans, that you can tone down the rhetoric, that you can work with your colleagues, Republican colleagues in the Senate, which you you have done. At the same time, some of those Republican colleagues have espoused conspiracy theories and lies and slander and, and, and used rhetoric that has radicalized some of these people in the country who then go on to commit acts of political violence. How do you sort of deal with that tension? You you want to you want to tamp down the rhetoric and show that democracy can work and you can work with the other side. But at the same time, the other side, at least some people on the other side, are uh, espousing rhetoric that makes this worse. Well, let me let me start by saying it isn't always easy hmm. uh, to do that. Um, but I try to make decisions in the United States Senate that will benefit the state of Arizona and the country. And I think we get better solutions when both parties are involved. When we work across the aisle, Democrats and Republicans working together. I think the CHIPS Act, perfect, perfect example of this. This is legislation. It was my language, the CHIPS part of the CHIPS and Science, myself, Mark Warner, Todd Young, John Cornyn came together, come up with that legislation, get it across the finish line. 
we get good ideas from the Republicans. We have some good ideas. You know, we come together, we, we throw out the ones we can't agree on. And I think we get a better product at the end of the day. So you, you got to put that as the priority. Um, at the same time, you can't, you know, you can't ever accept. Uh, and I think this is true more so in the, in the U.S. House of Representatives than it, than it is in the Senate. Uh, but we should never accept, um, you know, when, you know, individuals are just going over a line and doing things that could cause somebody, you know, to get, you know, hurt. Um, that's that's just unacceptable. So I will call them out. Yeah. Uh, all right. Before you go, I got to know, what's the scariest place to be? Space, combat or on the Senate floor while Ted Cruz <laughs> is speaking? Uh, I would definitely, you know, say, you know, flying in combat, uh, my experience, I've had a missile blow up next to my airplane. Oh, my God. On the first night of Desert Storm, an SA-6 close by and then immediately have another one coming right up at me. That is not a good feeling, especially the second missile. My gosh. Doing a last ditch maneuver or, you know, I I had a couple missions where I had, a, you know, I sunk two Iraqi ships, separate days, getting shot at, AAA, you know, fire directly, in one case from one of the ships, the other from the shore. And um, it is, let me say it's a little stressful, um, but you, you resort to your training, you know, you, um, and you, you, you accomplish the mission. That's, that's what my whole life has been about, you know, working hard, uh, making good decisions and just accomplishing a mission. And now I have this mission here in Arizona uh, to do the best job I pe- possibly can to the benefit of our state and our country. But I got an election coming up here. I ho- hope you're going to ask me about this, John. We've got like five or six days to go. And yeah. this race here is, it's going to be really tight. I mean, most of the polls have this in the margin of error. Um, this could really go either way. Um, I plan to be successful. Um, I also live by science, data, and facts. And the voters in Arizona have a decision to make. I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, I've worked incredibly hard, and we've gotten a lot done. We got bipartisan legislation done. And then when we couldn't get that done, you know, through the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, we're we're capping the out-of-pocket expenses for seniors on their prescription drugs. We got Medicare negotiation, big down payment on climate change. And, you know, so I think the choice is obvious because, you know, my opponent has just some like really, really bad ideas. But I want to make sure that folks realize that this 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 is going to be this is going to be close. There's going to be a lot of closes, close races across the country. You know, here in Arizona, I think it's going to be as close as any of them. Well, I hope all the listeners heard that and uh, go sign up for a phone bank or a text bank. I'm sure you could use the help in the final days yeah. to uh, get out the vote and make sure that people in Arizona mail back those ballots. Yeah, and they could go, John, they could go to markkelly.com. They can chip in a few bucks if they want. They could also sign up to phone bank. Or if they're here in Arizona and want to come here, come knock on doors. Knocking Perfect. on doors really makes a difference. It sure does. It sure does. Uh, Senator Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck in these uh, in these final days. Very welcome. Thank you for having me on.
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Pot Save America is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the United States with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. alone? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. The experts at Fast Growing Trees curate thousands of plants for all climates, locations, and needs. They're available 24-7. You can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, landscape design, and how best to take care of your plants. Landscaping, you know, it's, it's they may, you know, you get, it's expensive. expensive. It's expensive. And honestly, like, it's, it can be harder than you think to keep these plants alive. We've yeah. killed off a couple of them in our For day. sure. But, you know, with, with Fast Growing Trees, you got this uh, support line 24-7. You call and you say, hey, how do I keep my lemon tree going? And they say, water it more or yeah. something. Anyway, very excited about Fast Growing Trees. Right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And Pod Save America listeners can get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code CROOKED at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com. Use the code CROOKED at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code CROOKED. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. All right, before we go, we are handing it over to our chief take officer, Elijah Cohn, for a quick round of two takes and a fake. Elijah, take it away. Hey, John. Hey, Dan. How are we doing? We're great. Super, 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 super. (laughs) Never been better. Uh, John, I wanted to ask, you got that woman from Las Vegas, can't get her out of your head from that uh, focus group you did. What are you doing this weekend? I'm going to Las Vegas. To? going to Las Vegas. We are going to... uh, uh, John Lovett and Tommy Vitor and I are going to go do some uh, some kickoff events. Uh, we're going to do some ballot drop events for uh, some of the Democrats running in Nevada for the House. And uh, I think we're going to do two events on Saturday and one event Sunday morning. I think Lovett's doing one early Saturday morning as well. Lovett's going Friday night. So I will be here in Northern California doing things in this state, which will help determine control of the house, a state that does not have legalized gambling and very large, delicious buffets. <laughs> <laughs> look, at that. look at these guys living their values. <laughs> That's right. You can do both, Dan. You can do both. I, I, yeah, I have Mosafeamerica.com. No <laughs> All right. You guys ready to play the game? We sure are. All right. It's our take on the classic game, Two Truths and a Lie. Here's how it works. I'll read you both three takes. The producers have seen these takes. John and Dan have not. Two of the takes are real. One of them is fake. You must decide which one is fake. This game is three rounds across three different topics. John, as Dan said earlier, you are a current champion. You're on a hot streak. Any words before we get going? 
no, I'm just incredibly nervous. It's like uh, it's like it's like waiting for the last New York Times Siena poll, you know. <laughs> Wow, five stakes, <laughs> two takes, my friend. Uh, All right, just you playing meant, a type, just playing you, a type. You meant the every word of that. <laughs> yeah, this game matters. Um, all right, let's get into it. Topic number one: the 2022 midterms are less than a week away, so you know what people are writing about the 2024 election. Here are three takes about why Joe Biden should step down. Number one. It is frightening that Joe Biden does not know or remember what he recently did regarding an immensely important policy. He must be presumed susceptible to future episodes of similar bewilderment. He should leave the public stage on January 20th, 2025. Number two, many 80-year-old-plus seniors are still intellectually vigorous. Famed lawyer Alan Dershowitz, for example, is 84 and still an intellectual powerhouse. But Joe Biden isn't your average senior. Number three, what is perhaps even more baffling is it appears that no one on Mr. Biden's staff seems to care for his legacy. If he stepped down now, he would forever be remembered as the man who defeated Donald Trump and passed significant pieces of legislation despite a thin margin in Congress. A gaffe-ridden 2024 campaign would sully such a narrative. Which one is the fake? They're thinking... Audio medium. They they are both thinking very hard. Mm, man, Elijah really came to play today, people. Um, I think. Uh, shit. <laughs> walk walk me through. Where where, I, 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 where do I have dubs? to go first? Do I have to go first? As as the reigning champion, yes, you have to go first. You have I mean, honors. Oh, I'll, okay, I'll walk you through my thoughts. I'll walk you through my thoughts. It's tempting to do the Dershowitz one because I could see you thinking it was really funny to compare him to Alan Dershowitz because Alan Dershowitz is a clown. But also, I could also see some right-wing troll saying that about Alan Dershowitz. (laughs) So it's either a real thing from a right-wing troll or a fake thing from a left-wing troll. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yes. Okay. This is which really explains the internet. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's the that's the game. I'm gonna, and then the third one I feel like I've heard before. Um, I don't know. What do you? Um, I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with one. I'm going with two. One is the fake. So God I got you both. No, no, no. I'm oh. saying one as the fake. I got you both. Three is the fake. Legacy talk oh. is fake. <laughs> you know what that is? He just fucking took a Marine Dowell column from a few months ago and just changed and three just words. And just reworded it. Yeah, that's I know. Bullshit. I know. I know. That's what he did. I know. Fuck. That's so number fair. one, number one is real from George Will. That was getting a lot of play yesterday for being so ridiculous. The piece is way worse than even that paragraph. Because uh, it goes after Kamala too, uh, and number two is from the Hill. It's Meryl Matthews, someone I've never heard of before. I mean that that like I need evidence that that person God. is real before I I should have gone with three. He definitely was. I ah, fuck. Okay. Anyhow, all right. Next. Yeah, that's a tell. Get from him me. Legacy time. talk is exciting for me as a sports fan. <laughs> what, is, what is Joe Biden retiring me for LeBron's legacy? All right. Next up. We talked about this on Tuesday's show. Dan, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it. We have some takes on Elon Musk buying Twitter. Oh, boy. 
Uh, number one. These are all from conservatives, by the way. So there's a certain POV here. Number one. I'm thrilled that Elon finally got control. He immediately fired the left-wing executives. Lots of liberal tears. Number two, the woke iron curtain has fallen. The mob is in full retreat, and we finally have free speech again. Number three, it's the biggest and most significant purchase of our generation, if not American history. I think it's the Louisiana purchase of our time. <laughs> you could, yeah, three is three is absolutely real. <laughs> I think that uh, I think that two is two is fake. Dan, I'm gonna go with one. You think that three is is real because I laughed at it? Was that like a giveaway? That and just coming up with Louisiana purchase would be. I mean, I, look, hats off to you if you did it. Hats off. No, I couldn't come up with that, John. There's a reason you're the champion. Great bounce back. Uh, number two is the <laughs> fake one. Number one is real. It's very generic. It's Blake Masters, though, which is why it's uh, notable. He's out there talking about liberal tears. Uh, so I almost did that because just saying liberal tears is just sort of a funny. Yeah. Like who's, who just says that? But I guess Blake Masters does. To me, Blake it was Masters. really a coin. It was really a coin flip. And if we both pick the same ones, it seems boring. Yeah. Uh, and then three. You guys want to take any guesses? He's probably the stupidest p- person in Republican media. If you want to take a guess at who did number three. Oh, uh, Greg Gutfeld. No, less mainstream. Benny Johnson. Baseball crank. No, Charlie Kirk. <laughs> Charlie Kirk. Okay, that's fair. That is that. That's you fair. know what? <laughs> Incorrect historical analogies is really Charlie Kirk's uh, bed and breakfast. Bread and or, butter. Um, yeah. Bread and butter, not bed and breakfast. <laughs> yeah. The next line. If he had was, a bed, uh, if he had a bed and breakfast, it would be named incorrect historical analogies. <laughs> His next line was, people may mock me for that, but I believe it. Well, you were right. <laughs> you know what? Sure. You know Give, what? Giving him we what should, he asked for. Uh, you know what? That should be, people should adopt that as their auto signature. For $8 <laughs> a month, Elon, can we put that on all of our tweets? <laughs> Dan, since we're on Twitter and you didn't have a chance on Tuesday, anything you'd like to get off your chest about Elon's purchase, the Louisiana purchase of our time? I think two things. One, I think is example of how insular the political media bubble is that we're so much more focused on Elon Musk's purchase of this tiny little platform with not that many people where 90% of the content comes from 10% of the people and not worried enough about the fact that Mark Zuckerberg is just running, running roughshod over the entire world. That's one. Two, we should make every social media platform subscription-based. Everyone should have to pay for it. How about that for a take? Yeah. How about because, that for and let a me, take? Let me exp- Didn't see that one coming. Let me, ex- let me explain why. Because right now, if the reason these platforms do are so dangerous is we, you, me, everyone else who spends our fucking lives on them, are not the customers or the product. We are only exist to give them free content and then have our personal data monetized to advertisers. If we paid, they would have to pay attention to us. But instead, the customer is all the advertisers. So, but the ship is probably set on that, but... And I'm probably not spending eight dollars for uh, to be able to sort my mentions among various people I've already muted. So who cares? <laughs> Look, I just love a take, and that was great. <laughs> so, all right, let's do the third one. Okay, let's do it. This is what we're going to call the conservative Q and A grab bag. A lot of conservatives have been doing Q and As on their shows recently. Let's take a look. Uh, number one, this was in response to the question, "What do you think of anime?" Uh, answer, 
I think anime is satanic. I have no argument for why it's satanic. It just seems that way. Number two, this is in response to a question about the LGBTQ community. Quote, I think male homosexuals are largely born that way. Female homosexuals are much more complex. (laughs) And number three, this is in a question about Daniel Radcliffe distancing himself from J.K. Rowling's transphobia. I read the books with my kids a long time ago. I remember spells and wands and creatures and adventure and fun. I don't remember anyone ever getting canceled at Hogwarts. Which one's fake? Mm. I'm going to say three. I'm going to say... I'm going to say three, too. That's such a fucking... Wow. That's a coward move. It is a coward <laughs> that's, that's move. That's what I believe. Fucking playing four corners here. It's yes. what I believe. Typical Boston fan. Wow. Well, you are both correct. Uh, so that makes John uh, our champion. Um, I, knew, I knew it was again. three, and I thought if I aggressively went with three, because instead of waiting for John, he would then default to two just to be different. But instead... He played it. No, he played it safe because I don't care. I'm right not trying to keep it interesting. We, we both... trying to keep it interesting for the listeners. I'm trying to fucking win. <laughs> He's a gamer. Look, I think I have to say, in the end, here John has an a, a extreme advantage because I he is no more online than I am because you have to be online to play this game. He just has fewer interests, so. He's... <laughs> 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 Same amount of time. Here's just all political media takes. That is tough. That yeah. is tough. I also, I'm not going to reveal it because I want to keep winning. There's, there, I, I, I feel like I'm in a mind meld with Elijah, where like I know he, he, some of the ones that you that you're making up, that there's similarities to them. That I, that I, there's little things that set. Oh, set he is, he has a tell. Uh, yeah, he has a tell. Elijah, would you I'm like turn my camera off? Elijah, while, <laughs> while, Elijah, while you're here, would you like to share with the audience what you said to Tommy in a text about John <laughs> getting in a Twitter fight yesterday? Yes, I said that. I'm not going to say the person's name. I think we've subtweeted them enough this episode. But uh, John getting in a Twitter fight with this person while he hosts offline is the equivalent of a fitness influencer housing a pint of ice cream on their Instagram. <laughs> Perfect. No, no, no notes. As an extremely totally online fair. person, like John would say, totally yes. fair. I have no, no notes. Yes. Um, it was like your cheat day. It was, my cheat day. it was my cheat day. I've been pretty good. All right, that's enough of this pod. Thank you, Mark Kelly. Good luck. Good luck, Mark Kelly. I hope we helped. Uh, good luck in your race against Blake Masters. Thank you to Elijah for another two takes and a fake. I'm still champion. I, we, we're gonna win. Bye, everyone. Apologies for Bye. delirium. <laughs> VoteSaveAmerica.com. VoteSaveAmerica.com. Go help. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Haley Muse and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineered the show. Thanks to Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Sandy Gerard, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash podsaveamerica. Hold up. 
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.